This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise will later reprove wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be happy. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to false views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Okay. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with uh, all of you, I should say. So I'm not sure how... how... Well, well, Venerable, I'll give you a little introduction. Yeah. Uh, we, we come from many different countries. Right. Often, I'm, from, I'm currently in Osaka, in Japan. Uh, we have people um, usually, usually on an 
night is not just after Christmas. We tend to have around 34 people, 35 people. Right. And um, like I say, some evenings we have as many as dif 15 different countries <laughs> represent. I've uh, got people from America, from Germany, uh, from Sweden, from the US, from Thailand, uh, from Singapore. And usually we have a couple of people in from Malaysia, but not this evening. Uh, Sri Lanka, France. Australia? <laughs> uh, well, yes, yes, yes. yes. Okay, good. From Australia. Australia is our backbone that keeps us going. Without Australia, we could not stand. Well, Thank you. I guess, yes. Um, yes, uh, that really is the group, and uh, most of us uh, have been meditating for a while. Yes. And uh, a few of us have also done retreats, uh, not myself, but a few of the other members here have done retreats. And so that gives you an idea how to pitch. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, um, for, the, for the past two years, three years maybe, I'm not sure, um, I've been going to a prison near here to teach the guys in the prison, uh, to lead them through meditation. And uh, you would imagine that they would have restless minds and would have difficulty sitting. But the format is the same, 7pm to 8.30. And uh, they've impressed me in that some of them, in fact, many of them eventually, sit for the whole hour uh, and we, we talk less and we sit more, I guess. Um, and yet, and on another occasion, I taught somewhere else and some, the, the organizer told me, rather, I've got a bone to pick with you. We're only supposed to sit for half an hour, not an hour. So, yeah, yeah. What I like to... We're kind of, we're, sorry, Venerable, we're yeah. kind of used to sitting for around half an hour. Yeah, okay. Uh, what, what I did do for the guys in the prison was, because when, especially we are, we are beginners, right? I consider myself a beginner as well. None of the uh, jhanas that Ajahn Brahm talks about yet. Um, but I suppose if I had if I'm a bit more verbose in the guided meditation, there's less tendency for the mind to run. So I might do that. Um, but if you, you, you can tell me if I'm too talkative. <laughs> oh, no, you can be as talkative as you like through the guided meditation. There'll be no problem. Okay. So um, with regards to the meditation proper, I was going to suggest this evening... Um, this, this con idea that Ajahn Brahm talks about, um, and he calls it the second noble truth meditation and the third noble truth meditation. Some of you who are more familiar with the Buddhist teaching will know that second noble truth says, the cause of suffering is due to all your cravings and all your anger and all your uh, wanting, basically. Wanting it to be how you like it wanting it to be different from the way it is. And the Buddha says, that's the cause of suffering. And the third noble truth says, if you can put that wanting aside, if you are 
unaffected by that one thing, your suffering goes away. Ajahn Brown paraphrases that to say that if you're contented, then you have nothing to do. You have nothing to fix. And that's, his, uh, that's basically his strategy for deep meditation. And uh, what happens is that when we sit down quite often, um, there's stuff that we've been up to for the earlier parts of the day that you have had to fix, whether you're worried about it or you're trying to make something better and it didn't go quite your way and you had a conversation and it wasn't half as pleasant as you expected or you bought something and it didn't perform, it didn't work out the way you expected it to work out. And the discontent uh, disturbs the mind, as in, you've got something to fix. Uh, and that is the thing that moves the mind. Whereas, if you sat there and your view of the world was, okay, everything's beautiful, I'm in a safe place, it's nice and warm or nice and cool, however, uh, whichever you prefer, uh, you're not wanting anything in terms uh, of creature comforts, food in your tummy or whatever, then there's really nothing to do. You can just sit and perhaps smile. And that would be a good start, good place to start your meditation. Um, Problem is, this mind has a momentum. If, if you've been working on something, especially if it's something you're passionate about, something that triggers your emotions, good or bad, whether it's positive or negative, your mind has been playing with this thing and for you to say, now let go, put it down. It's kind of hard. So. If you've been watching Ajahn Brahm's guided meditation at Nola Mara, same like this, first half an hour, the talk tends to be quite calm, peaceful, uh, pointing towards letting go so that you can relax, slow down, and be in the right mindset uh, for that meditation. Um, yeah, so the one observation I've made in my own practice is that there's the mind space, I call it the, the, the creative studio, where you do your thinking, your problem solving, uh, your fantasizing, and perhaps even where you plot your, your, your rehashing of the day's uh, interactions. I should have said this, why did that person say that? And how can he do this? And, and, and those conversations all happen in the headspace. And in contrast to that, there's the here and now space, which is in your five senses rather than in the imagined space between your ears. 
So now that you have your physical bodily sense, you can feel the chair that you're sitting on, you can see the screen in front of you, you can hear a voice, you can feel if it's warm, and, warm or cold. Um, there's probably not much to smell or to taste at the moment, but we want to be in the here and now, five cents space, and get out of that head space. Um, and what Ajahn Brahm also explains is that the glue that, that guides the mind, steers the mind, um, generally is what the mind finds pleasant or what the mind finds important. So if that thing about what happened during Christmas Eve is still bothering you and is still something that you, your mind wants to crunch, your, yeah, then that's where you will hang out uh, for the next hour or whatever it is. Um, the, the mind has to be inclined to let go, to understand I've been carrying that for a bit too long already. Time to put it down. Time to give myself a rest. And when you genuinely believe that, then your mind will say, okay, really, really, please put it down, put it down. And yeah, and the image I have in my head, um, because even this idea of putting stuff down and to take care of yourself and allow yourself to rest, um, we have this critical judgmental mindset that say, I should know better, I should get rid of that thought, or I should... Whereas the way Ajahn Brahm describes it, it should more be like the way a mother would handle a one-year-old child, where you have infinite patience. The child can do no wrong. No matter what the child does, you'll pick up the child again and say, calm dear, relax, relax. Uh, and you would soothe the child, right? But sometimes uh, our habits of being critical with others, we tend to treat our own minds, we treat ourselves the same way, being critical. And uh, if only we could treat ourselves like that one-year-old child, and say, calm, relax. And, and that's, that's the mind state, that's the mood that you want to be in when you meditate. Rather than to sit down and say, oh, I have to sit down and relax, I must be still, I must... And, and of course, if you try and do that to a one-year-old child, the child will cry and make even more noise. Right? Rather than that, Think about mine as that one-year-old child can't be controlled. You just have to be patient and to love it and to be soft with it. And perhaps then the mind will 
finally calm down and sit with you. And that's what we want to do. Any comments? Any questions? Uh, please feel free to unmute and ask a question if you would like. Um, one of the other things that, that um, That this, um, how do you say, this aspect of meditation plays out is the way we, we treat thoughts and the way we treat illnesses and discomforts. Um, while we think, okay, we want the mind to sit quietly contented with us, but that aching in the foot, the headache in the head, uh, the cancer in that part of the body, I'm going to get rid of it. And that pushing away stuff is still second noble truth, wanting something to be different rather than accepting it as it is. So whether it's that cancer, the injury, the pain, or the thought in the head, or the worry, or the tiredness, even that you bring, may my mind rest. The thoughts and the mind is actually one and the same. Uh, we, you, we don't say that the mind is what I love and what I care for and the thoughts is something else and I need to get rid of that. Instead, the, thoughts on, the, thought, the mind occurs only when there is a thought. So when the mind picks up a thought and it's agitated, it's one and the same thing. You bring the mind and the thought together and say, calm down, relax. Just like if you were hugging a teddy bear or a one-year-old. <laughs> so, yeah. Good? Good, all right, okay. So... This should be fine, vulnerable. This is wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I have a classmate who's got, at my age, has got uh, a cancer and he's fighting it. And, I don't know, in the Western world, we, we, we keep talking about fighting cancers as if the cancer is something else foreign. And then when you read about it, it's actually your own cells misbehaving. So, um, it's a bit like saying, okay, here's the child, here's my child, and I don't like the misbehavior. Then what do you do? You chop off the misbehavior. <laughs> you can't quite, right? So, instead, you have to embrace the whole lot and be contented with it. At least, if not for tomorrow, at least for this half hour, to say, come, sit down, really relax, rest. Yeah. And then when you, when you do go, uh, go into the, the meditation itself, just like when you go into retreats, I quite often think of retreats, when you go to Jana Grove, for example, some of you have been there maybe. I, I often think of going to retreats like going to a mental asylum when the mind has burnt out, <laughs> overworked, 
and you need to really rest the mind. That's the time you sit down. Okay, mind, you can relax. And that's, that's yeah, the attitude, the mood, as I was saying, that, that we take towards meditation, always uh, rooted on kindness. Which is, why, which is why Ajahn Brahm coined the word kindfulness. Mindfulness itself is not enough. As in, if you're, okay, I must force my mind to stick to their breath. Every breath that goes in, that goes out, I must be mindful. But if it is dry, and if you think it's a chore, the mind doesn't want to do it. And the mind will run <laughs> the first opportunity it gets. It will pick up something else to play with, rather than a, than a chore. But if you treat the breath as a friend, and the mind recognizes a friend, the mind will come and sit together. Yeah? So, yeah, that's, that's the approach. Um, whatever you encounter in, in, in the meditation later, the, the, the difference between doing this on Zoom and doing it in a small room with, uh, in, a, in the prison's chapel with five, ten of them, is that I don't get feedback, I don't hear your feet shuffling, I don't hear if you might be yawning or agitated. So, uh, I get less... We're yeah. not agitated. <laughs> Zoom, Zoom, Zoom is a mysterious medium, actually, and gradually, gradually it becomes comfortable. Yeah, but... Uh, yeah, okay. So, yes, so... Questions, if you have any questions. If not, do start to relax and do start to put your body at ease. Let go of all. Yes. There was one interesting experience I had in the uh, at the prison where I started the the guided meditation and the guys were quite tired. You could see they were struggling to stay up and you could hear yawns. I can't hear yawns through Zoom, I presume. <laughs> but then I told them, okay, even if you're tired and yawning, to struggle against that and stay awake and focus on, on the instructions, and, and it's too tough. And it's, it's hard on the mind. The mind doesn't rest. And I told them instead, no, no, okay. Imagine if you were doing a long drive and you're actually tired and you're on the steering wheel. You should really stop. Find a parking lot, find a park. And get, catch your 40 wings. And that's what we did in the meditation session, the, the half hour, well, half hour, whatever. And we slowed down, stopped the body relaxation and stuff, and just rest the mind. And interestingly, everyone stayed awake. 
the mind stayed in its space and rested. But awake, without struggling. Uh, and so if you do feel tired, even then be kind to the tiredness, be kind to the tired mind and let it rest. Yeah. Then hopefully at the end of uh, the meditation, you will feel a bit rejuvenated, a bit more rested, a bit more at peace. Uh, that's the hope. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Uh, shall we start then? That would be lovely. That would be lovely then. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah. Do 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 make yourselves comfortable. De-stress. If you find your room too bright, you're welcome to turn down the lights. Um, if you prefer a different posture, go ahead. As I was saying, enough of the conceptual stuff that's in the head space. Get out of the head. Get, in, get your attention into the body. And for starters, um, feel everything there is to feel under your skin. Generally, you would um, notice first all the discomforts. And if you notice them, <coughs> now's a good time to put yourself at ease. However, whatever way that helps you, relax, adjust your sitting if you like. And sometimes it's, it helps to be a bit more structured by first pointing your attention to your feet. The bits below the ankles. Start by noticing what's under your feet, the contact with the floor or the carpet, and then notice 
the sensations inside the foot, the feet. And as you do, relax all the muscles. And interestingly, as you relax, as you pay attention, you'll notice more and more of the sensation. You kind of realize that these sensations have been there the whole time. But we only now notice it because we are paying attention. Let's move the attention a bit further up to the calves and the shins. And in line with the mood, we invite the calves to relax. If there's any tension, let it let them just melt and drain away. If some of these stresses and tension doesn't go away, that's fine. We don't know how long we have held these muscles in tightness. That sometimes they become habitual. And it takes a while before the muscles would loosen themselves up. 
But in the meantime, we will still give kindness to all these muscles. Let's move up again to the upper legs, the thigh, the hamstring, quadriceps, big muscles. As we get used to doing this scan, the mind learns to be more at ease in the body and not jump back into thinking. It's as if now the body is the playground for the mind. Many sensations to pay attention to. And the more you look, the more you find. Moving a little bit further up, around the hips, the buttocks. Also another set of complicated muscles. Relax them. Care for them. Okay, let's move up to the abdominal area. We are now dealing with some postural muscles, muscles that keep you upright rather than muscles that move us. So they tend to be muscles that 
just hold on tight. And muscles, we forget how to relax. I invite you now to loosen all the muscles around your abdomen. In Pilates or yoga, they say, okay, you must tighten your core muscles. But here in meditation, I would say, let it all hang out. And the thing is, to, re to relax the muscles on the front, you also need to relax the muscles at the back, the lumbar muscles. as well as the muscles on the sides, the obliques. And what you will notice is that Your breathing immediately becomes lighter and easier, smoother. And there seems to be more space inside for all the organs to move your stomach, your intestines, the liver. Everything just relaxes. Perhaps, in taking the next few breaths, you might want to use the rise and fall of the abdomen to massage and caress all the organs on the inside. Check how they are, see how they're feeling. and to let them relax.
as you can already sense this mood of caring and relaxing of looking after yourself can be a very nice and comfortable place for the mind to hang out Let's do the same for the upper part of the body, above the diaphragm. Here too are Many complex sets of muscles, the intercostal muscles, the intervertebrae muscles, the pectorals, the trapezoids, all sorts, just to keep the body upright. Imagine now you can let it all relax. Feel the breath as well, going in and out. is one of quiet relaxation. You can 
kind of feel all the discomforts, but you can also feel them slowly dissipating. And there's no rush. It doesn't have to go any quicker than it does. We are just contented to be here with this old body. And because we care for what's happening here, that the mind pays attention automatically to the way the breath goes in and out, the way the body interacts with the breath, The other thing to notice is that in this mood, the sensation of the breath is all pervasive, it's everywhere, it's not just at one location. parts of the body moves while you're breathing. Especially when you're relaxed.
Let's move a little bit further up to the shoulders and the neck area. Relax the, the muscles on the sides of the neck. Loosen them. Let your burdens drop off. Allow your shoulders to droop if they want. Moving up again. These are what I call parts of the the body armor that protects us from the big bad world outside, the muscles around the jaw, loosen the jaw. You don't have to hold them tight. Muscles on your cheeks. You might notice that some of us clench these muscles even though we're not deliberately expressing any emotions on our face. And then up to the eyes, the eyelids, and especially the muscles that move the eyeballs. You'd think we only contract these muscles to turn the eyeballs left and right, up and down. But you notice they get tired as well if you try to concentrate for too long. Roll the eyeballs and relax. Relax also your eyebrows and the, and the bit of forehead where you hold your frown. Let go of that frown. 
the front, let the forehead relax. You can do a whole body scan and see if you have missed anything. If there's no other parts of the body that is asking for attention, perhaps then we can go back to the torso, relaxing again all the muscles front and back, and to sit with the breath. It's the kindness that makes this place comfortable for the mind. And as the mind becomes used to this space, we can also take away the tension from the mind itself, allow the mind to rest too. It's as if the mind is 
cradled by the breath. The breath and the mind becomes mutually supportive, mutually nurturing. Just like two good friends enjoying each other's company, no need for words. for excitement. Just this comfort and warmth
I invite you to enjoy another 10 more breaths. Then I'll ring the bell three times. And we'll meet thereafter. Thank you, Venerable, uh, lovely meditation. <laughs> we ran a little bit over time. <laughs> Good. Uh, Catherine, you've got a hand raised. Would you like to ask a question, make a comment? Mm, sure. Thank you. Mm, thank you, Venerable. It was such a beautiful <laughs> guide in the meditation. Um, I think... You know, the words that you used felt like um, water to a, a person in the desert. Uh, really appreciated the, the gentleness, the cradling, the two old friends, the enjoy the last ten breaths. It was just really lovely. Um, we should have gone on longer, it right? It made me wonder with the blokes up at Carnet Prison, yeah. Um, and I think it's a low security prison. Um, 
and maybe maybe the the men that find that language difficult come once and don't come back. I don't know. Um, I'm I'm interested in how they respond um, to the Ooh. softness that you invited us into, which I really appreciate. Uh, as you'd expect, a good mix. Some of them will never miss, and some of them you see them once. But uh, what was interesting was there was a time when one new guy came along, and uh, we made our introductions. And then I asked him, "Am I the first monk you've ever ever met?" Yes. Okay, uh, good, welcome. And then we did a one hour sit and he sat through the whole one hour and he came every class since. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, there's also another guy who also comes quite regularly, never speaks a word when he comes for the whole 90 minutes every class, comes in, sits quietly, does the meditation and goes off. Um, there's also another guy who comes in, the first class, he came in, he looked at me, he had his hands folded. But eventually he loosened up <laughs> and uh, shook my hand. So yeah, uh, different people, different reaction. Yeah. But by and large, they enjoy it. Uh, having said that, Carnet is has a population of about three hundred, and only about five to twelve. Twelve is the biggest number we saw. Yeah, who turn up for the classes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but hopefully, um, I guess what I was trying to convey from the beginning was. Something that Ajahn said that struck me, because I, I, I've been an engineer much of my life, and for me it's always facts and figures and theories and formulas. But then Ajahn said, meditation is more feeling than thinking. And, and then I saw that, huh, what, what, what does he mean? And, and then, yes, I slowly discovered, yes, this softness that you were pointing out to, the warmth, the mood, the gentleness, the kindness, is in fact, like Ajahn says, the glue that holds the mind to the object. Quite often, uh, people would ask, okay, I want to do breath meditation, I want to do four foundation mind uh, mindfulness meditation, I want to do metta meditation. Uh, and then you ask Ajahn, people ask Ajahn, and Ajahn says, it's all one and the same thing. And then we're thinking, how do you mean it's one and the same thing? Breathing can't be quite the same as directing matter. And then Ajahn explains, he says, you and the object, the object might be breath, the object might be somebody who you want to send matter to, the object might be your thoughts or your feelings, but the essence of meditation is not the object. The essence of meditation is the relationship 
What's in between? What Ajahn calls the in between, which is your feeling towards that object. And that holds you, holds the mind, your attention to the object. And how you treat the object, whether you're a control freak, whether you're a super achiever, or whether it's just somebody who cares about the object. And therefore, metta meditation is the same as breath meditation because it's metta towards the breath. <laughs> That's how Ajahn sees it. And when you're contented and uh, you don't find fault with the object that you're watching, then there's nothing to do. And when there's nothing to do, the mind sits still. The, the, the thing that I found really useful was when Ajahn pointed out second noble truth, the cause of suffering, the cause of the mind wanting to fix, to attend to stuff, to do stuff, is because it's not contented. It wants to fix, change, make something better, retaliate towards somebody else. All those things makes the mind uh, unpeaceful. Yeah, makes sense? Yeah. It, it's such a beautiful way to um, think about meditation because um, it, it allows us, I think, to be, um, it allows us to be content with a, a wide variety of experiences yes. if we're in that relationship that's easy. Um, yes. Whatever comes up. That's right. And, and uh, I suppose as we grow older, and we will find more faults with the body. The more you fight with it, it's, it's not as if your anger towards your body is going to make things better. Anger towards anything doesn't make very much many things better. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, harboring anger, if anything, makes it worse even towards an illness, or towards a, yeah. And that's, I suppose, core teaching of, of Buddhism as well. Yeah. So, yes. Uh, wow. <laughs> I don't know. Some, what, what, Occasionally, we also find in the monastery, despite the different religion, sometimes we've come across a lot of depression and anger that happens around this time of the year. Uh, mostly family squabbles, I guess. And uh, again, the few people I've spoken to when, where these kind of problems arise, it's always the other person is unhappy with me because I do this, or I'm unhappy with the other person because they do that. And what's implied underneath all that is I need to fix her, or she needs, she's going to want to fix me, <laughs> and something is unhappy. We are discontented about each other. And therefore, uh, 
you want something to be different from the way it is, and that causes all your suffering. <laughs> yeah. So no. I look at, for example, the, the Middle East situation, it's like, it's something that's been going on for thousands, yeah, probably thousands of years from biblical times until now, and it's still going on, and it's like, haven't you figured out anger, violence doesn't work? <laughs> but yeah, I suppose that was, that's, that's the thing that makes the world go around, anger and craving. Yes, anything else? Uh... Is there anyone else who'd like to unmute? Yes, Eli. Oh, hello, Venerable. Hello. Thank you for the beautiful meditation. I, I feel like I was, uh, I was on the adventure of the peaceful land when you explained <laughs> one the one that you know, <laughs> the muscle, the torso, and, and your abdomen and stuff like that. And I feel I can enjoy the meditation because actually I have just, you know, just a simple pain around my neck or, yeah. or body. My question is that how should we react or direct our mind when we are in actual pain? Like when your body is really in pain, like in, in high fever, or you have foot or stomach edge that lasts for two, three days. And when you try to be peaceful, that kind of pain just comes to you and kind of attacking you like that. And then it goes away and then you try to meditate again, then it comes back again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your reaction as the, the beginner of meditator is that you want it to go away. Because it's really painful and it disturbs your peace when you try to sit down. This just I'm just taking the example of the tooth edge. Yeah. Then it comes then you feel like I want it to go away. Yeah. So how do we space with a trend in this kind of situation? That's a natural reaction for most of us, all of us. Uh, the the Buddha was quite deep in this, the way he explains. He says, as soon as you can differentiate between what is nicer and what is not so nice, you will always choose the nicer. If somebody showed you uh, a big car and a small car, and the big car has got the aircon and the everything else with it, and the small car doesn't have any of the fun stuff, you will always want the, the big car because it feels nicer. And the mind is like that. Uh, you will always choose, if you had a choice, you would choose the good stuff and you would try and kick away the bad stuff. Um, but in, in regard to this kind of pain, bodily pain, the Buddha himself spoke about the two darts. Have you heard of the story? So he says, if somebody threw a dart at you and it hit, say, your foot. Obviously, it's painful. But he says, most of us suffer two darts, even though only one dart was thrown. The first dart is the physical dart that hit your foot, and you feel the pain. 
And the second dart is when he's going, and then that's the second pain. The mental pain, not the physical pain. Uh, and the way the Buddha put it, the second dart is self-inflicted. <laughs> it's something that you don't want and you curse at it and you uh, and then you feel an additional level of pain. Uh, and believe it or not, you have a choice whether to inflict the second dart or not. It's your own mind. It's your own reaction. Uh, and you understand that, then you say, okay, I can feel the first dart. All right, need to fix the bleeding, but no need to curse, no need to scream and shout. Uh, and my guess is you've actually experienced that just now when you spoke about your shoulder pain. I mean, when we pay attention to the body, by and large, what you feel is just all the achings everywhere. Uh, most of it is uncomfortable. Only the little bits like the pleasant breathing, the warmth and the, the, the comfort generated by the mind, that's, 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 that's the nice bits that you feel. But by and large, the rest of the body is complaining, work too hard, burnt out, uh, aching here, injured there, sick here. And when you actually pay attention like we did just now, with a kind heart, you can feel the aching, you can feel the pain, but at the same time, you feel good about it, right? I don't know. Did you, did you feel good about being able to feel the sensations and to know that because you are sharing a kind uh, intention, thought towards that part of your body, you kind of know it's going to be alright, it's going to heal. And even though it's uncomfortable physically, it's pleasant in the mind space. Right? So, when you have the toothache, same thing. Uh, when you hate it, that pain is bitter. When you're comforting the toothache, just like you're comforting a one-year-old child, it's something you are willing to do uh, without question, without suffering. Yeah? Yes. I see a hand. Yes, Guy, would you like to unmute? Yes. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Yes, that was a wonderful, wonderful meditation. <laughs> um, I felt no pain. Oh, wonderful. I was in pain all night while I was sleeping with my uh, right hand was really burning all night. So oh. It hurts again now, right now, but the whole time of meditation, I was very grateful for that. I, I was listening to Dr. Gabor Mate. Yes. Um, many people will be familiar with him. Um, he was talking about resetting the body and that many of our uh, chronic conditions, which I have a host of them, mm -hmm. uh, I guess I've been in... Uh, um, an avid people pleaser my whole life. Uh. 
I don't know really why. I mean, there's a million reasons. But the chronic pain is a mystery is how it can um, be so connected to our behavior and our mind. It's not independent no. of everything. It is, it's just becoming, I'm 71, so awful to realize that all my chronic conditions, not to blame myself, but they're all my fault, you know? And um, I'm losing my head. Take it off of, they're going battery low, battery low. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, another, another chronic condition. <laughs> but um, I know in, in, in the three characteristics, we have to practice non-self, dukkha, and impermanence. You know, um, this helps me with a lot of my chronic pain. But knowing from doctor, a qualified doctor, who is a specialty in this body-mind relationship, mm -hmm. it, it, it leaves me lost but yet found. You know, I'm not in a quandary. I'm just in a constant mystery. And, and I want to solve it. I, I don't know how much time a day to concentrate or forget. Um, I know when I cook, when I'm peeling a potato and I see a blemish in my potato, I take it out and I throw it away gently and I imagine I'm throwing away my defilements and my, and my chronic behaviors and obsessions, you know, but... I don't know what to do about it all, but the meditation that you did was very much a la Ajahn Brahm. You know, he does a wonderful body scan, but um, yours was very gentle and sweet. And um, you can comment to the chronic pain and the connection to the mind. Um, but I basically wanted to comment how grateful I was that I had a 30 minute meditation with no pain. <laughs> I think I scratched my neck once and my eyebrow once, you know, but not with pain, with joy. <laughs> so thank you. Um, I really enjoyed your um, talk and meditation. You're welcome. So I'll yeah. be quiet. <laughs> There's actually a lot of signs about what you're talking about now. Uh, I've been an avid reader of that kind of stuff. Uh, it turns out people who had um, adverse childhood experience. You can look this up on the internet, uh, on Wikipedia. And it does say that if you've had uh, an unlucky childhood, that you might sometimes, you are more likely to, to develop a lot of this chronic, possibly uh, autoimmune stuff. That's what I have. Yeah, and it helps. What? This is not scientific. This is what I gathered from the stuff I read and, and the way I digest it. It kind of says this. If we view ourselves uh, disparagingly, as in, I'm not worth it, I'm not good enough, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not worth 
the other person's time. If we treat ourselves that way, the body treats itself that way as well. But how do you fix it once you've done it for 60 years? Yeah, well, or whatever. It's, it's one of those things where you kind of need an aha moment to say, ah, I don't need it anymore. And the story that I have in mind is somebody called Anita Murjani. Have you heard her story? Write this down. Look for her on the internet. A-N-I-T-A Murjani. I think it's M-O-O-R-J-A-N-I. This lady was a people pleaser, tried to please her parents, eventually developed some serious case of cancer to the point where she lost, I, don't, I think something like half her body weight or two-thirds of her body weight. The doctors called the husband and the children to the bedside and said, okay, a few more hours to go. Say your goodbyes. And then she goes into a coma, goes through the tunnel, see the light on the other side, experiences what she experiences in a near-death experience. Somewhere in there, she's told, this is the reason why you're having your cancer. And she came back and told her doctors, I'm not dying. The doctors said, what are you talking about? You're delusional. In, in some crazy time frame of two weeks or four weeks, they said half the cancer was gone in Less than a year, they couldn't find a trace of it. But it took a humongous mind shift. Something that just clicked in her head while she was on the other side. That she wasn't to blame. That Yeah, there is a cause to all these things. And she can recover and she can accept herself for what she was, who she is not having to please anybody, but she doesn't have to be rude or unnice to anybody either. And she gives talks and, and yeah, go look her up. Yeah. There's, there is a lot of science now that says, what happens to you in your first 10, 15 years of your life takes a toll on you for the rest of your life. The statistics are quite uh, astounding. Very true. Yeah. Very true. I, I chose not to have children and not to be, um, I married late in life, but um, because I'm, I'm, my childhood, although I'm a lot of fun, in my opinion, I had a miserable childhood, even though there were nice, there were nice people yeah. around me and yeah. I did some fun things, yeah. but in my opinion, the abuse and the hypocrisy that yeah. I grew up with and the strange religious hypocrisies left me so confused. Yeah. And I never knew how to say no to almost anything, to almost anything. I'm amazed I'm still alive. But um, Dr. Gabor Mate told a story similar to what uh, Anina Mujani, uh, the woman had cancer and was dying and she, she realized she quit her job, she quit this, she quit that, she sold everything, and now, 10 years later, she's celebrating 
you know, her uh, 57th birthday. Um, she was on her deathbed practically too. So I, I suppose um, being grateful um, for Dharma, being so grateful for Dharma, and I'm able to see Dharma in everything I do. So there's a chance that I have a few uh, good years ahead of me. Yes. And I'm um, grateful for this group, you know. Um, there's another message there in the notes. But thank you, um, everybody in Armadale. I um, care for you all, and I love this group. And I would get up, Eddie, even with a bad toothache, to attend this class. <laughs> all right. Take care. Thank you. Well, uh, Venerable, that's a very good place, I think, for us to leave it this evening. Would you be so kind as to perhaps offer us a blessing? Ah. Sabarogo vinimuto sabasantapavajito Sabaviram atikando nibuto chatuvam bhava sabitiyo vivajantu sabarogo vinasatumate bhavantuantarayo suki digayuko bhava abhivadanasilisani Buddha Pachaino Chattaro Dhamma Vadanti Ayuvano Sukhang Pala